Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. On today's episode, we're going to take a look back at one of the great American films of the 90s, Oliver Stone's JFK. I presented the movie at the American Cinematheque in Los Angeles as part of their Friend of the Fest series. This was a festival in which podcasters were invited to program a favorite film and talk about it. And I took the opportunity to record a live episode of Filmmaker Toolkit with Oliver Stone after the 35mm screening. This conversation took place at the Cinematheque's west side venue, the Arrow Theater. They also programmed the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood and the Los Feliz Three on the east side, and it gave me the opportunity to interview a director who I think had the most spectacular 10-year run in the history of movies, when he made Salvador, Platoon, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Heaven and Earth, Natural Born Killers, and Nixon between 1986 and 1995. Of course, Stone has continued to make great films since then, and we talk not only about JFK, but about his recent documentary work and why he's an angrier and more passionate filmmaker than ever in 2023. Here's the conversation we had in front of a sold-out crowd at the Arrow on Saturday, August 26. Please join me in welcoming the co-writer, co-producer, and director of JFK, Oliver Stone. Thank you. Thank you for coming out on such a beautiful day. It was so great to see it on the big screen again. And every time I watch this movie, I'm so impressed by the amount of information that you're able to get across and how clearly and entertainingly you get it across. And I think a lot of that has to do with this visual style you came up with where you're mixing film stocks and color and black and white and archival footage. And I'm curious where you came up with that approach. Is that something that was part of the original conception from the writing or did it grow out of conversations with your DP, Robert Richardson? No, I think it's a question of so much information. Of course, we're attacking, we're on the offense. And at the same time, we have to play defense because we know we're going to be questioned. So we probably put too much information in, I think. I mean, I see places where I could have taken things out. It wasn't, it wasn't necessary to prove the point again, or again, or reinforce it. But sometimes, you know, you have to argue in, in light of what happened afterward, and the enormous amount of defense we had to play, that we needed as much ammunition as we could take. But it's, it's a lot, I admit. There's another version that's three hours and 30-some minutes, which is the fi director's cut, which has more information if you want it. <laughs> but it's, it's a lot to sit through, I know that. It was one of the first three-hour movies that came out at that point in time. And uh, as you know, uh, it was a big deal to get it through the system. Well, I was wondering how you got it through the system. Watching it tonight, I was just thinking, it's, it seems so unlikely a movie to be made by a major studio at that level of resources, given you know, just that it's three hours, how challenging it is, how much you're taking on the, the establishment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, that was an issue. Uh, the, uh, you know, frankly, we snuck it through. I mean, it was a question of, first of all, I sold it to the very sympathetic uh, executives, uh, Terry Semmel and Bob Daly at Warner Brothers and their group, as a, as a suspense, as a mystery, as a, as a thriller, really. And they liked the idea of a thriller, because it was a big question. It's a murder, and who did the murder, and how does it get, how does it get resolved? On that basis, they started the project, and of course, it grew. It grew into a longer movie. I had as a basis the Jim Garrison book, On the Trail of the Assassins, which I believe is 
as accurate as it can be to what Jim's memory is of that case. Also, Mars's book, Jim Mars's book, Crossfire. There was enormous amount of detail and juicy detail. We had to make choices. I regret some of those choices, yeah, it's true. But the sanctity of this case is clear every time. It's just clear to me that I feel we were definitely, a, we were Sherlock Holmes, one of the first Sherlock Holmes. I wish we, it would end like a Sherlock Holmes, but of course, it doesn't, you can't fight the, you can't fight this government except by repeating and repeating and sticking to what you know and feel. And as you know, those of you who are here today, I think are sympathetic to the case and how the government has resisted to this day, including as recently as last month when the government sealed off again the, uh, without authority, really, with, illegally in my opinion, they, they closed down the JFK Records Act, basically, and they said, which the, Jeff, the JFK Records Act came into being in 1992, Congress, they said everything has to be open unless there is a, you have to state the reason why, a specific reason why to hold it back at this point in time. Everybody was dead. That's in 2017. And Trump reversed himself and s still held back. We know that he was under pressure from Mr. Pompeo, he said, who was at the head CIA at that point. And then after that, Joe Biden, uh, last month, without any discussion, on a Friday night at midnight or something like that, on the July 4th weekend, and announced that from here on out, uh, the, uh, any, any new information would have, would, that would be released would have to be, to go through a process of enormous amount of, you have to go and prove I don't know what you have to prove, frankly. It's just that you, they don't have to prove anything. They can just—they call it a, ma a matter of, at that point, they called it a matter of COVID and national security, the combination of COVID. Uh, I don't know why COVID has to do with this. It's a joke. It's a real joke. Well, it's so crazy. I mean, you know, for people who don't realize, this movie is one of the few films that actually had a very concrete, real-world impact in the sense that a year after this came out because of the discussions that came out around this movie Congress did pass that act that said the records would be released and I don't understand you know why do you think this has happened in the last few why do you think Trump and Biden like what these pressures that are on them what what's your theory as to why this stuff can't come out uh, obviously the fox got into the chicken coop here so I mean the fox is not going to let this stuff out it's 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 as Bobby Kennedy Jr. said on quite openly, he said it, these files probably most likely pertain to the CIA people who worked the Cuban operation. And that would include Atlee Phillips, it would include uh, Joannides, George Joannides, it would include Bill Harvey, it would include the guy in Arizona who was a sniper. No, it was a, it was a sniper during the Vietnam, went on to kill a lot of people in Vietnam. Morales was his name, was the Indian, famous Indian. Those kind of people, that's where you want to, and I'd love to get files on Richard Helms, and of course, Alan Dulles. It's all buried, it's all there. There are files of some kind. Of course, they're not gonna say point blank this, 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 but one thing leads to the other. These people in the community that are investigating the assassination are sharp, as, as very sharp, and they pick up every little and that's what they're scared of, those people, because they know one thing leads to another, like a link. Well, going back to when you made this movie, I want to talk a little bit about the casting, because this is one of the all-time great casts. You've got movie stars and great stage actors and old pros like Walter Matthau and Jack yeah. Lemmon and comic actors like John Candy and Brian Doyle Murray. What was your thinking going into this in terms of the casting and 
what kinds of actors you were looking for and what you wanted from them. I mean, it's just such a rich, rich ensemble you've got well, here. The idea was, I knew that it was complex material and I knew the audience. It's very hard, to, first time through it, to remember who everybody is. So obviously if you put a face like Jack Lemmon or John Candy or Walter Matthau, people recognize the face and they know right away more or less the mood, the feeling, what that person already said in the movie. That's why. Uh, and it's a good way to do it. And that's what we use actors for. They, they can become very uh, like book covers, you know. If they're all unknown people, it's, it's going to be harder and a deeper thicket. Oppenheimer did a good job with uh, a lot of fa famous faces uh, t because there are so many scientists that it gets confusing. Yeah, um, you know, Costner is fantastic in this movie. And I was surprised when I read your uh, memoir that you had offered him Barnes in Platoon. It's, and he, Ooh. Kevin Costner? Yeah, I don't remember the details. Did I say that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was your working relationship like with Costner? I mean, he at this time was one of the biggest stars in the world. He made the film happen because obviously the script was bigger appetite than my stomach. In other words, it was more expensive than we ever thought. It came in at approximately $40 million, I think, in 1991 terms. They wanted to get a partner right away because they didn't want to take the full risk. They were very supportive, believe me, but they brought in this guy, Arnon Milshan, as a co-producer because he put up half the money from Europe. That lessened the burden, and they wanted one star. That's all they asked. So I, we went to Kevin, and Kevin was a huge star, as you say. At that point, he was very, very, everything he did was turning to magic, so that made the big difference. We stayed on him. Uh, uh, we stayed on him, and his wife, Cindy, at that time, was very helpful as was Mike Ovitz, who was the head of CAA and was very relatively close to Kevin, and I think they convinced him. I think it's a scary role for it. Harrison Ford turned us down, people like that. Harrison Ford was terrified of it, you know, in a way. You have to understand there's a risk here. Once you go play that role, you could be off limits. Uh, so there was fear. Uh, who else turned it down? Probably Mel Gibson. I'm writing another sequel to the uh, memoir, and I'll get into all the details in the diaries. So yeah, it was scary. Kevin has guts, he has guts, but uh, once he committed, he committed and he stayed on it. He wanted to meet Garrison, he wanted to go through all the case again, and Garrison was very convincing. Uh, well, it would be a scary part, I would think, for an actor too, just the sheer volume of dialogue. He has that courtroom scene at the end of the movie. I mean, everything he has to deliver there, that's a, a I would think an extremely intimidating set piece for an actor. I mean, was he nervous about that? And how do you, how do you, with something like that, with Costner doing that, or Sutherland's speech that happens a couple hours into the movie, how do you create an environment for an actor where they can feel secure and safe and feel like they can pull something like that off? Well, that's a, it's a big speech. And I have to tell you that Kevin was worried about it. And he concentrated on it the whole shoot. I mean, he was getting ready to do it. We did it very late, and so he'd done everything else pretty much. So it came at a time when he was ready. Uh, and he went through it. It didn't take days to shoot. It just, you know, we did it. I have to say, though, he, it was, and he did it, he did it straight. He didn't, I don't think he broke it up. Uh, Donald Sutherland is uh, amazing, amazing because it was a long one too. That was 13 minutes or 14 minutes and Donald Sutherland is a very smart man and talks very fast, thank God, because <laughs> that scene could have gone on for twice that length. He talks fast and I had I, been dumb enough to go to Marlon Brando 
<laughs> because uh, who I, we all want, we all love them, and you know, of course. It, and if he'd said yes, God damn, it would have been, <laughs> it would have been fucked. I, I would have had to cut it in half. Yeah, Sullivan, we were very lucky. I'm fascinated by this idea that you went to Marlon Brando. What kinds of conversations did you have with Brando? I'll tell you in the next book. With something like that Sutherland speech, how long does it take you to figure out, in a scene like that, um, the exact amount of information you're going to get across? Is that something that was like continually evolving through the editing? Did you have to play around with that a lot, or did it stay pretty much to how you had written it? Pietro Scalia is here. He was one of the editors. Pietro, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it went pretty, I know that the, it was at the end of the movie and we moved it up to the middle, which was important, very important, it was a structural change. Because once he goes to Washington, he's entering in a new battlefield. The whole picture rises to another level. So he realizes, Costner realizes how, what he's up against and it's much bigger than he ever thought. So that's why it, went, it moved to the middle, it sets a whole stage for the ending. So in other words, he's saying to him, go for it now. Doesn't matter if you don't have enough evidence against Clay Shaw. Go for something and hope that you get some breaks. That's really, that was a strategy. And I think Jim Garrison knew that. He did not have a strong case against Shaw, but he had just enough to, to start the thing. And uh, he took his chances, but without that, with, unless he'd done that, we wouldn't even have had a public prosecution, which I think is very important. Because at the trial, not only did the Zapruder film get revealed, but also the testimony of Pierre Fink, among others, who was at the autopsy and one of the bad guys, clearly shocked the government and upset them that he said the things that he did about not controlling the autopsy. That autopsy was a, was a farce. It was the, it's a key to understand the case. If you refer to the documentary we made last two years ago, JFK Revisited, which we go into, this, we go into the, the facts of the case. JFK Revisited, it's called. And the autopsy is a very, it's a key element, and we have all these autopsy doctors who talk about it, and all the violations of code that were made on that case. It's unbelievable that the President of the United States gets the cheapest autopsy of all, and he just gets, shunt, gets trundled through by a bunch of amateurs at the, uh, at the, in the Navy when the best autopsy people in the world are right next door in Washington and New York. But they ignored that. Yeah, I really recommend that documentary JFK Revisited to people who like this movie because it basically updates this with the 20 years of research that have been, or 30 years of research that have been going on. Yeah, the, the Records then. Act did reveal a lot of detail. Uh, and the Records Board, Assassination Records Board, which existed for four years, uh, got that out those records and we've seen them all. Of course, the media has made mincemeat of them because, you know, they say, how come people don't reveal? They do reveal. We've had hunt, uh, dozens of revelations and people don't put it all together into, the, into one puzzle to understand. They only hear the information in select bites. Well, it was fascinating. You were preparing for this. I went back and I was reading a lot of the commentary that came out at the time and you had people, you know, you had people like Roger Ebert who loved the movie, had a lot of pundits who, you know, had, in my opinion, somewhat not very substantive arguments against the movie. You've really been proven right. When I read these articles, a lot of the things that people criticize the movie for are things that have proven to be true, that they said you were wrong about. And I'm curious for you, just from a sort of stamina point of view, how do you keep going in the face of the assaults? Because this movie, I, I mean, people who weren't there can't, you know, I remember when this movie came out, I mean, you were just slammed 
day after day after day in Time Magazine, Nightline, you know, the, the, the mainstream press just sh was shredding you constantly. And how do you keep going after all that? Well, you have no choice. You can't go back. Uh, it's like once you open the case like Garrison did, as Sutherland says, you know, you can't go back now. Uh, you're dead meat. Uh, yeah, once I crossed the Rubicon there, you can't go back. And it's been a battle for me because it hurts the business. People consider you a troublemaker and a conspiracy theorist, you know, that CIA terminology. Uh, and you just can't ever recover the trust with certain people who will back the government no matter what. And, but I, I think what I kept going with was my interest in other so topics too. You see, I kept making different types of movies for myself. They were challenging for me, very challenging. You've seen a few of them. You were involved in one of the biggest disputes of all was the Alexander business. And then there was the natural born killers business. And then there was all these other businesses that came up. So it's been a busy life. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm not scared of the government. They can kill me at this point. But <laughs> frankly, I just, they are so fucking obtuse. They don't change the story. They don't even bother to defend this thing. This, I have to laugh, but I do have some anger about how impossible it is to get the truth out in this world in this country specifically, and how much they continue to lie about current events. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about that watching JFK Revisited and then watching your nuclear documentary this year, which is also fantastic. And I'm curious, you know, it, because of this, this idea that, you know, they just continue to lie and continue to come after you and things like that. I mean, does it make you... How are you different now than you were when you made JFK? Are you more passionate, less... Yeah, you know, I, I, more. I mean, I know more. I, I know more. When it, all this stuff, this information on the military-industrial complex, a lot of it was given to me by Fletcher Prouty, and a lot of it was Jim Garrison. Fletcher Prouty was an inside guy that Sutherland played. He he had been there since World War II. He saw all this shit go down. So I mean, these people know it, and they've been telling this story. Many people have told this similar stories. We know, and yet we go. We're still under their influence. We we. we we're sending $130 billion to Ukraine based, based on the same kind of lies. Back to the, the movie and the, the filmmaking component of it, another thing about this movie that really struck me watching it on the big screen tonight is the importance of John Williams' score. I feel like the score in this film by John Williams does such a great job of keeping the momentum going, and it's just the... the the themes in this are some of the best that Williams has ever done. And obviously, you've done a couple other great movies with him. What's your collaboration like with Williams? How, what kind of conversations do the two of you have on a movie like this about the music? John is very, uh, he's one of the best. So gentle and a man and easy to get along with. Uh, we, only, we only did three films together, and all about Americana. And in each case, he delivered something uh, more than I expected or... or he, he deepened and enriched uh, Nixon so much with a, with a dark score. It wasn't as easy, accessible as this score, but it was a dark, uh, dark, tragic score. And of course, Born on the Fourth of July, man, he made that memorable for many people. Uh, well, that whole Americana idea, something else I really like about this movie is that in some ways it's so modern and so audacious, but then it also has this kind of old-fashioned quality to it. I mean, again, it has this kind of Capra-esque, Norman Rockwell quality to the stuff with Kevin Costner and his family. Um, where did that idea come from to sort of have both of those elements in the movie? I mean, on the one hand, you have this movie that's attacking a lot of our 
institutions and the people who run them, but then it's using the iconography of kind of very old-fashioned classical patriotism. It, well, it's Southern. First of all, it's Southern, and there is a tradition in the South, and they're very polite. New Orleans, but New Orleans is also one of the most corrupt places I've ever been in my life. It's, it's uh, Southern charm with Southern's venom, the fight infighting there, the hatred for garrison. And I noticed when I walk in the street, people loved him. The, the general population loved him because he was an honest DA. But um, when you get to the uh, in elite class, they were always attacking him for all kinds of reasons, among them Kennedy. But there was the corruption charges that were never proven. And they always kept saying he's in with the mob and all that. So you have all that backbiting going on. Uh, the wife, and he did get a divorce uh, over uh, sometime after this. But I met her a few times. And she was what the, Sissy portrayed her beautifully. And of course, I got a lot of criticism because she wasn't an agent for change. That she never was. She was warning him about the. F she and they paid the price. The family was uh, broken up, and the children were probably uh, hurt to some degree because he did get over his head. You can make a separate movie about that case, and the CIA opened a whole kind of file, a mini department on Garrison. They went after him viciously. Uh, with, with media people, Walter Sheridan played a big role, and actually Robert Kennedy, unfortunately, was misinformed about him, and I think was told horrible things about him, and w w did not support him in any way. You mentioned being in New Orleans, and this movie has some great uh, just location work between New Orleans and uh, Texas, and uh, I was surprised reading the American Cinematographer article on this movie, to see that um, the whole courtroom thing at the end was not a set. You guys shot that that on location. Do you have any kind of feelings about sets versus locations? Do you feel like shooting on location gives you and the actors something that sets don't? I can accept both. I like location because it's got a lot of feel, texture, and it helps the cast, I think, to be involved. And also, you don't want them in Los Angeles on a stage because they go home every night. You want to keep them trapped. and. Uh, under your control and influence. <laughs> Talking about cinematography, I just wish, you see, Warner Brothers has not been the same since, uh, and they never made a 4K of this, which is, and you saw the result tonight, it was just scratchy and it wasn't, it wasn't timed correctly. They're, I'm sorry, the, the prints that I've seen are they're really, uh, by, if Richardson would tell you, it's, uh, was just not right, but Hopefully now we're getting a 4K uh, by accident, kind of. So we'll have a 4K of this somewhere in this year. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because even the version of this that's streaming right now on Max has like hairs and scratches and stuff. It's ridiculous. We well, they, there's been a lot of opposition to it. From It has not been a critic's film. I mean, some critics, but not been a critic's film. And, and also, you know, it doesn't get picked for uh, festivals and stuff like that. For some reason, there's fear. Of, there's some kind of thing around it. Of, it's controversial. Still, still, it's saying things that people don't want to hear. Well, you mentioned uh, Robert Richardson, and the two of you had an incredible run in the late 80s and early 90s. And then I was, I was so happy to see him back with you for JFK Revisited. Um, talk a little bit about that relationship. What do you think made that such a productive director-cinematographer collaboration? Well, whatever makes a love affair work, or good sex. <laughs>
how did you come to work with him again on JFK Revisited? Oh, that after was fine. That was it. Was fine. That was documentary. It wasn't the same as being on the set and gnashing it out. But uh, it ain't over yet. We'll see. Well, and I wanted to ask too about shooting. You recreate the assassination in Dealey Plaza here, which seems to me like something that would just be an incredibly difficult logistical undertaking. I mean, what were the challenges of conceiving and executing that whole? Oh, come on, you can understand that from everything was a problem. First of all, getting permission from Dealey Plaza was a torturous fight. Location manager Jeff and Clayton Townsend got into it. I had to go in front of the board and answer questions. You know what? There was a three to two vote for us, finally. Three to two, barely made it through to get permission to shoot in the actual plaza, which is a big deal. So we closed the whole plaza down to the, to, for the city and we put our own cars in, period cars, everything, and we'd fire off the shots. Uh, sometimes there'd be volleys of 15, 20 shots it, it, and we'd do seven takes. So the whole, all of Dallas would be listening to and hear this stuff coming from uh, Dealey Plaza. It was quite something. Uh, the whole city was kind of locked into it in the sense it wasn't a big town. I mean, Dallas. So to shoot, it was disgusting but hard. I mean, it's hard work to kill a president and to do it like with seven cameras and people on radios. The Washington Post is hanging out and ripping you to pieces on, on their daily stories. You know, they were after us, and so was a lot of press. They saw the first draft of the script. They got it somehow, and they, they went after us at that point. So from the beginning, we were militated against. Uh, there was articles saying it was Alice in Wonderland. And well, now I get why the government is after you for a movie like this. I mean, what, are the, what does the press have to gain by attacking it before it comes out? I mean, Because we were saying what the press never said. The press never did their job. They never did any work. They just accepted the uh, conclusions of these people in the uh, Dallas Police Department and uh, so forth. And then ultimately the Warren Commission, they just accepted it. In fact, the Warren Commission, you know how big that was, 23 volumes or whatever, 26 volumes. It came out and the uh, New York Times declared it sacrosanct about two days later. In other words, who read it? I don't think that they ever fucking thought about it. It's not funny when you think that Warren, Alan Dulles is sitting on the commission and sees everything. And you, I guess some of you know that they never, uh, Dulles made sure that they knew nothing about the Cuban operation. We, they were never allowed information about what was going on between the CIA and the Cuban community and, the, and theoretically the mob, because the mob was involved in the hit on Castro. So all that was kept away from the... And of course, that would have raised suspicions. You, you would have gone in that direction. And they didn't know anything about Vietnam, nothing. That was all super secret. The NSAMs were, were private and, and hidden, for, for, except for some insiders. So Kennedy's NSAM on 263 was, was not known. All this came to my attention because of Fletcher Prouty. And Jim Garrison was pretty close in his book, too. If you read his book, his, his suspicions at the time are pretty uh, amazing. You mentioned, you know, that you think you maybe had too much information in this movie to a certain extent, and that raises a question for me about the editing process. When you and Pietro and Joe are working on the editing of this movie, and you're so close to the information, and you've read every book and every article and everything you can get your hands on and interviewed all of these people, how do you retain your objectivity about what an audience coming to this fresh is going to think? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's a very tough question because... First of all, you have to go off your own instinct. I had researchers, I had people who knew things, very good researchers who knew the details. But you know, at the end of the day, you're, you have to call it the way you feel it and see it. I made mistakes, I made mistakes, uh, which bugged me, but still, 
it's pretty clear what's what happened here. Yeah, definitely. And um, you know, again, I, I'm curious. So you go you go back and you do JFK re revisited and uh, Destiny betrayed the longer version. I did it. I did it because it annoyed me that all this information was coming out of the ass assassination records review board and had been chopped up and ignored basically by the media. So I felt it was necessary to do an up to date version with the new information that was given so people might understand better what happened. Who distributed it? Do you remember? Uh, well, I know Shout Factory put it out on DVD. Yeah, and well, then Shout Factory is a small outfit. Warner Bros. didn't distribute it, you know. So it, it did very well. It's still number high up on the lists at Amazon and all that as, as a DVD sale. So it's a very, that's very, uh, it shows you people care. Well, in the last few years, you've been moving into a lot of documentary work. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, is that a, do you find that documentary filmmaking allows you to express things you weren't able in narrative filmmaking, or is it a matter of yeah. economics? I did 20 feature films, and I'm proud of them. And, but at a certain point, you do get, you know, you've had your fill. You, you, it's a lot of work. At a certain point, you have so much time, and you want to get to the point. So the documentaries I made have been important to me. Untold History of the United States was 12 hours long. I put a lot of hours into that. Thank you. And it's very important to me to get the history right because we we don't seem to have a good sense of our own history, uh, history, uh, untold history. And then there was the uh, nuclear now, which just came out. And before that, there was Putin interviews, and there was JFK, and there was Castro interviews and Chavez interviews. I've been trying to to get to the big stuff for me, the big picture, which is you know basically it's 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 not a simple world, but you know you have to wonder why. The problems in this film with the military-industrial complex, they're still around, and they're all around us. It keeps the budgets artificially high in this country, and who are the people who are benefiting? They shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be. This is a disgusting criminal enterprise that's been going on for a long, long, long time, and it's getting worse. So uh, what are you working on now? What do you have coming up next? There's a strike. I'm not working. <laughs> All right. There's one more documentary coming. We just we did it two years ago or, so, or a year and a half ago. It's just the Lula story uh, of Brazil, which is probably of limited interest here, but it's quite a big, interesting story. He's a hero in the, in the document. So we covered him, Lula. Well, as a fan of yours, I have to say, I'm so happy that you're still making movies and that you're still angry enough to keep doing it and still passionate enough to keep doing it. And I really appreciate you coming out here and showing JFK and talking about Thank it. Thank you, Jim, for your support. My pleasure.